0: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have on our show today Terry O'Fallon. Terry is an applied researcher, teacher, consultant, coach with a focus on learning and change in human systems. She is the co founder of Stages International. Today's topic is developmental ethics for leaders and organizations. Terry, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's so good to be here,
0: Maureen. So let's start with the topic of developmental ethics and the idea of leaders do no harm. Why is this an important topic for you?
1: So often we inadvertently think that we're going to do something that will help the world, that will be a good thing, but we don't think it through enough. And we find out that there are unintended consequences that not only bring harm to us or to our employees, but also to the world, because we don't think it through very well. You know, when I think about harm, I think about a leader. And leaders, there are so many different kinds of leaders, as you know. But a leader, it's important that they work on their own interiors in order to recognize harm when it comes up. And that's part of the issue, I think, is that we don't notice our own interiors and we don't look for how we ourselves can do no harm. The positive things that we can do, because we spend so much of our time looking at bottom lines and goal setting and that sort of thing, and that all comes out of the leader's and their own intentions and their own recognition of goodness. And so I think focusing on this topic, the inner penetration of what business does with the interiors of the leaders, I think it's an important topic.
0: Beautiful. So to level set for our listeners who may not have followed your work, what do you mean by interiors? You're not talking about my intestines.
1: No, no. (laughs) I mean, what I think about when I think about interiors is there's two particular areas. One, though, is one's emotional congruency and capacities. And there's so much research out about that. The other is cognitive it's so important to think about both of these things because what you do cognitively is influenced by your emotions and of course cognition is what helps you look at where your goal setting is and where you're headed and looking into the future and all of that but uh, if you don't have a clear emotional palette, then sometimes you're missing out on not only unintended consequences but the good you can do that you can't recognize Can you give us maybe
0: a couple of examples of someone who could have done more good if they had recognized it?
1: There's a famous one, and I don't know the names of these researchers, but the researchers that built the atom bomb, as I understand it, had no intention for that bomb to ever be used to blow whole cities up. That was an unintended consequence, I believe, for the people that first invented that. So that's a really dire example The other thing is is that people have a tendency to look into the near future and they look at the positive qualities that the organization or the leader can get to for their company and maybe for their workers, but they don't look far enough out and they don't keep asking the question all the way along the way. Will harm happen? And specifically look for the possibilities that something might cause some harm they get so wrapped up in what they think might be good and what they feel would be especially a good bottom line and many of those kinds of things. Part of their reasoning and thinking doesn't necessarily come about by specifically looking for harm that might happen. The way that I think about this is you might have something that you put in your plan that actually looks very good in the first three years, the first five years or something like that, and you can see no harm. And so you put your goals into action, but you can't see harm down the road. The thing is, is that you need to constantly look each year to see, is there harm being done and how can I adapt this idea that I had so that it isn't going to do harm or withdraw it if I can see a lot of harm being done? I'm sure that the oil companies at one point didn't see any problem with doing harm to the climate process when they began. How can you be adaptable in the moment so that you're committed to doing no harm, so that you can adapt early So this calls for an adaptable organization. Complex adaptive organizations are adaptable. They're very adaptable, but they are constantly asking the question, is what we're doing, could it cause harm? And we have many, many processes in the world today where good was intended, like smoking, for instance. (laughs) Good was intended there when they started it, and then, of course, over the years, we found out that that's really not a very good, healthy thing to do. So I'm just saying that constant looking, constant adaptation before we get so stuck into a process that we have a very difficult time changing it, it's just a good thing to look every year and look ahead and see, can I see anything that might cause harm here? And if so, is there a way that we can adapt our idea or our process in a way that we can alleviate that harm before it actually occurs? So it's a specific focus that leaders, I think, can do. Now, we're talking about businesses and organizations here, but actually when it comes down to it, everybody is a leader. A parent is a leader of their family, and how they treat their children really makes a difference in the future of the children, and yet many of them don't really know a lot about parenting. If they were thinking about how can I do no harm, they would really be up on all of the most recent research and that sort of thing. And they would start adapting their parenting style. They'd be up on all of the developmental processes. And business also can become aware of the developmental, the growth and the developmental stages of their organization. And notice the capacities that each developmental stage would allow more wisdom and more grace, that sort of thing. I mean, there's it's a very big topic, obviously. Emotions are really a big part of fueling the kind of thinking that goes on when we talk about doing no harm. Terry, as I think about reading
0: your assessments, because I have the honor of coaching people based on your results, you often write about balancing positive and negative, I realize are a bit subjective, but balancing negative emotions with positive emotions. Can you say a little bit about why that's important?
1: Well, there's some pretty good research out there that shows that people who have three times as many positive emotions or express three times as many positive emotions as challenging ones, they end up having a much greater sense of well-being. Now, of course, if you don't have a feeling of well-being in your work, you're not going to be as good of a leader. The second research project that I've become familiar with in the past year or so is that just simply focusing on a feeling when you have it, asking yourself, what do I feel? And then actually acknowledging what you feel, whether it's positive or negative. The positive feelings you have increase and the challenging and negative emotions that you have when you actually identify them and speak about them decrease. This is a practice you can have that will give you a chance to achieve three times as many more positive emotions as challenging ones. What you want is a sense of well-being as a leader, but you also want it for all of your employees. You want it for the people that you serve. And so this is an important thing. It starts with the leader and what the leader learns to do with it. But You have to experience it before you can work with other people on it. And so, you know, the practice is a very simple practice. Just simply stop and ask, what am I feeling? And then recognizing, labeling, naming that feeling. So simple, but so powerful.
0: I want to dive into that a little bit more because there are people I've been around and we've probably all experienced them who can tend to get stuck in the negative. I would label it if we were labeling a victim kind of thing. These people are mean to me and this thing happened to me and this thing happened to me and they tend to get stuck in the negative. So you're talking about when I process I felt disrespected by someone, and that left me feeling hurt and angry. There's a bit of processing through it, and yet other people just continue to sit in that for long periods of time.
1: Well, you can ask people, what are you feeling right now? And they might say, I feel disrespected, but there's an emotion under that disrespect. It's the anger and the sadness or whatever. You just get them to label that then they realize they have that emotion, that emotion of anger, that emotion of sadness or whatever it is. And just labeling it, if they continue to just label it, rather than feeling that other people are projecting this on them, they realize they're the ones that's having the feeling. They are naming the feeling and they have it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can teach people to just recognize the feeling. It doesn't matter where they think it comes from, but they have it. When they name it, they have it. A simple question is, what are you actually feeling right now? Disrespect isn't really a feeling. What's the feeling underneath that? And you can help people. But you need to help yourself first. If you can't identify your own emotions, you're not going to find it very easy to help other people identify theirs. But this is something, you know, when you have difficult conversations with people, you're going to have those. Just having them label their feelings and you label your feelings will help them to dissipate, according to the research. And you will have fewer and fewer of those. They'll be be less and less triggering as, as you do that through time. When you come to an agreement then, uh, you might say, well, what are we feeling now? I'm feeling happy that we finally came to an agreement here. And that will increase those positive emotions. It will decrease the negative ones. The more you recognize the feelings, the less negative emotions we have, the easier it is to get along with people because you just don't sink into those emotions. You don't get stuck in them so often. People that get stuck in their negative emotions probably can't even identify them. Other people are identifying and say, this guy is angry all the time. But they may not know that. They may not see the negative in themselves because they may not be able to name their negative emotions.
0: That's a really important point, and I know for me in my journey, when someone asked how you were feeling, and now this was decades ago, not last week, I would have said something like hungry or tired. Yeah. I may still say that, but those aren't feelings. No.
1: Those are body sensations. Yeah, they're not emotions. People in their very early developmental levels will say, uh, when you say, how are you feeling? They probably won't name an emotion, but they'll name you know a, a sensation instead. Because the early emotions, usually in the first four stages, most of our leaders are beyond that. You know, organizational leaders are beyond that. They have to be in order to have enough cognition. So developmentally, they more than likely can name an emotion they're likely to use the word angry instead of mad. They might use the word sad both in their concrete emotions and their subtle emotions, but sorrow is another word. These emotions grow up, but they become more and more refined as we develop into later and later stages. And so you can look to see where your own emotions lie. How do you name your emotions? You can get pretty complex about all of this, you know. So angry, when people say they're angry, that's a really refined feeling than saying, well, I'm mad. I'm mad at you. Seeing I'm angry with you is is a more refined emotion than I'm mad at you. So our language differentiates and makes a difference. So we can grow these emotions up to be more and more refined and more and more delicate. And then recognize those in other people. Recognize when they're kind of concrete with their emotions or whether they actually have a more sophisticated and detailed and refined emotions, it'll help you understand that person a little better as well. So, so emotions are a way that you can start looking at the interiors, the interiors of yourself and the interiors of the people that you work with. And the willingness to even share an emotion is actually a very good thing. Sometimes you have to be vulnerable in order to share how you feel, especially a negative emotion. People like to, especially at earlier levels, they like to, everything is fine, you know, and sometimes people say, I'm just fine. You can cultivate naming emotions in other people by sharing your emotion first. I find myself feeling a little angry here and I don't want to be angry. So how how are you feeling? Are you feeling angry too? Or how are you feeling? And maybe they'll share that back. But it's a process because these levels of vulnerability will build trust. And that's what you want. You want trust with the people that you talk with and a, a level of transparency and honesty you have to watch the level, though, because you need to be sure that you're on the same level that other people have the capacity to understand. So, anyway, that's the way that I look at it.
0: In the idea of growing up emotions, you've also talked about giving and generosity and the idea of generosity of heart.
1: Yes. Generosity of heart is very interesting because many people can become very, very generous, you know, in a variety of ways. But generosity of heart is the capacity to give something to someone that you absolutely love and are attached to. (laughs) I can give you an example of this. It's a concrete example, but it'll let you know. My sister-in-law, whom I love dearly, made a a beautiful stained glass picture for me for Christmas. And she loved it so much. She wanted to keep it. She wanted to keep it in the worst way. And she almost was in tears when she gave it to me because it was it just almost hurt because she wanted it so badly. It was a beautiful, beautiful gift. So next year, I gave it back to her for Christmas because I knew how much she wanted it. But, you know, can you give something that you love and are attached to to somebody else like uh, maybe you're attached to your car and these are concrete examples and you've got a very expensive car and you've got to be reasonable about what you do here but maybe you know how would you feel about loaning that car <laughs> these are simple examples but when it comes to later developmental levels, there are other things you're very attached to, like you're attached to your own ideas. And maybe somebody else has an addition onto that idea that is is really a good thing. Can you give them credit for it, even though it smarts a little because they are taking off on your idea and doing something with it? Can you be open-hearted enough and generous enough to acknowledge that? These are difficult things to do.
0: One of our colleagues, Mike Fox, is a researcher and was the foundation for things like our mindset competencies. He has not gotten enough credit in the world for that brilliant concept. Hopefully that changes over time. But yeah, he had, a, had and has great generosity of spirit in sharing his intellectual property to help the world.
1: Yes, That is indeed sometimes very difficult to do, especially when we get into competition and when we feel competitive. And yet, on the other hand, maybe some of that intellectual property can be released to everybody because it might do some real good. You know, these are just examples of how you can be generous when it's not easy to be generous. And you have a feeling in your heart about you want to do it, but you really question whether you're actually going to be able to give it up. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> So let's go to one more, and it's lightheartedness. And in in this competency model, we talk about having a sense of humor and that I can laugh at myself, Not not that I go to a comedy show and laugh, because most of us can do that, but that I can make light of things in a way that allows us to move through challenge and create trust and build authenticity.
1: Yes, that is a very important one, but it's also important because... Well, if you combine lightheartedness with being aware, awareness is a thousand times faster than thought. So if you can move from the capacity to pay attention, to the capacity to focus, to the capacity to recognize in yourself and others when things come up, And your capacity to be aware of that, these are just steps that you can get into a greater mindset. And uh, that awareness often happens at the 4.0 pluralist stage. You can become aware of your reactions fast enough that you don't react. Instead, you reply with a sense of humor or lightheartedness or laugh at yourself and say, oh, my gosh, here I go again. The very fact that you are lighthearted rather than reacting actually takes away the possible upsets that people can have as well. That also allows you to move on. So you combine lightheartedness with with awareness and oh my goodness, it is so powerful because before your reaction even comes up, you become aware of it and lightheartedness comes out of your mouth instead. And that is a delight.
0: For me, and this may not be exactly what you're talking about, but we're talking with someone, I'll say something that I thought was intended to be funny or something, and the other person's reaction is clearly not what I thought. Right. My quick response is often, you know, that sounded really good in my head, but clearly you did not see what I thought I was saying. And just the ability to then invite
1: Yes, that's true. And for some people, you know, they are really quick-witted and they can these jokes just come out of their mouths and sometimes they don't have a chance to think about or be aware ahead of time of what a reaction might be in somebody. And that's something else, you know. Many people won't react to what you say, but you know enough about their developmental level. This is something, of course, that we teach at Stages International. You you can really sit in front of somebody and you can determine very quickly what their developmental level is. And especially if you're doing coaching and consulting, leadership happens as a result of somebody having an issue of some kind. They come to you because they need help. Usually the help they need is at an earlier developmental level than they are because they can't solve it. Being able to determine the developmental level of somebody in a negotiation or at least of their issue is really a beautiful capacity. And so, those are some of the ways that you can combine development with lightheartedness and with humor. A lot of times, lightheartedness comes about when you might have said something that was like a projection on somebody else. You know, you say something or you do something yourself. And you realize that by the looks on somebody's face, that's something that has not landed right. You can laugh and say, I am so sorry, and make a joke about yourself. Your response would be good, and also my tongue is faster than my head or things like that. And putting a little bit of lightheartedness into it along with an apology can really help a lot. And sometimes people want to talk about their reaction well, I'm talking about when you have a reaction, if somebody also, you know, says something that you're about to react to, you can be lighthearted and say, well, I might be like that for me. And then then make a joke of yourself, you know. And so making a joke of yourself is actually kind of hard to do sometimes, you know. But that's one of the ways that lightheartedness works. And I think what you were talking about in your ethics and your values process is very much the same thing.
0: You mentioned apologies. How do apologies play into this concept of growing up emotions?
1: People can apologize to you or you can apologize to somebody else. So if somebody is apologizing to you, you can forgive them for what they did. You do that because you know that it will relieve them. People that apologize probably recognize that something went awry someplace and they have a burden about it, a burden big enough that if they actually apologize, you know that they need to be relieved of that burden. And by accepting an apology, it dispels all of the negative feelings between you. But sometimes you need to apologize. (laughs) And apologizing is sometimes difficult. The thing about when you need to apologize and you realize you've done something wrong, but you can't do it, you recognize that the apology that you need to ask for, you are holding negative emotions to the point where they're actually, those emotions are damaging you. They aren't damaging the other person, they're damaging you. So apologizing is not only getting relief between two people, which you hope for, the emotions that you have, which can be anger or hate or whatever upset it is, will dispel from you. An apology, when given and accepted, takes the burden off from both people. And that's what we want to see. Sometimes people will not accept your apology, but you can recognize then you've done everything you could. And you don't need to keep beating yourself up because you did everything you could to make things right. So making things right is important. And apologizing, sincere apologies are very, very important for people to be able to do. And apologies relate to forgiveness. That's a a very generous thing to be able to do, to forgive somebody, especially when they've done what you feel is real harm. In GTC, in the Generating
0: Transformative Change
1: class, one of the
0: things you taught that I thought was really valuable is beyond apologizing, the concept of restoring the balance. You know, I think of myself being late, which is especially when Zoom meetings are scheduled every hour on the hour. Yeah. And there's just the biological yes. break and the coffee refill that has to happen, which means I am generally leaving early or entering late. This idea of how do I restore the balance? Because it's one thing for me to apologize for being late, but I know next hour I'm going to be late again. What does that restoring of the balance mean?
1: It means that when you apologize for something, you restore the balance by trying to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So in your case, if it doesn't happen again, it's not because you don't want to be on time. It's because you've got so many other things going on You know, you might restore the balance by talking with them about your schedule, about how difficult it is to be on time, and then give people, you know, say, I have every intention of being there at X time, Mm -hmm. but I might be 15 minutes late. So give me a little leeway so that they aren't sitting there waiting for you and then getting angrier and angrier and angrier. On the other hand, you might really look at Restoring the balance is a tough thing to do because it depends upon why are you being late. If you're late because of of needing a, a bio break or something like that, that's important. But if it's for another reason, then you can look at yourself and see, is there a way that I can be on time more often? Now, that's a kind of a concrete thing, so you can move into things that are a little bit more subtle and and on later levels, like um, maybe breaking confidentiality or something like that. And if you uh, apologize for breaking confidentiality, which is a really important thing, you want people to trust you again, then you're going to have to work at making sure that they can trust you again when you've broken that trust. You change your behavior. You do not break confidentiality then. You just don't do it. You work on that part of yourself, and that helps to restore the balance. And you let them know that you're taking action to make sure that that never happens again and and you're sorry about it and you're genuinely sorry about it. It's very different apologizing for being late because you needed a bio break and apologizing because you broke confidentiality with somebody that really trusted you. In some instances, your apology means... I'm going to change this trait in myself. I'm going to really work at it. And the important thing is to decide, how do I restore the balance here? Given the difficulty level of the problem that I had, Mm So that seems
0: like a good segue into the question of ethics, the idea that it's one thing to apologize with no intentions of actually changing. Yes. But the ethic of I did something that violated my values or violated our agreements or violated your expectations of me and the ethic behind also feelings and how we show up in the world, because my ethics could also be different than yours.
1: That's true. Guilt and shame still come up, you know, in those kinds of instances. And I would say that almost everybody has a sense of guilt and and shame when they've done something that they know isn't appropriate. People do have different ethics, but what you can do is explore the emotions underneath whatever their belief is, their ethical belief is. And that is a one way to increase your own capacity for understanding and increase their capacity for understanding what, You know what makes them angry, what makes them, makes them upset, what makes them feel sad. And that is a gift you can give to them if you can help them explore that. Just name the feeling itself, and you can name your feeling itself. What it tends to do, regardless of whether or not you have a different understanding of values, it tends to increase your positive emotions and decrease your reactive emotions. And that's good for everybody. Once you understand these two simple processes of increasing your positive emotions so you have three times as many positive emotions as as challenging ones and decreasing your negative emotions because that's where your reactions come from, You can see that the climate that is built that way, even though you have very different beliefs, really helps a lot. It helps to build a social climate between you and somebody else. And if you have that in an organization where everybody is gradually increasing their positive emotions, decreasing their negative emotions, you have a positive climate and people begin to understand they can talk about anything they're concerned about. They can talk about any of the edges that they have without worrying about somebody, you know, uh, plowing into them some way. What I'm saying here is that, regardless of the different kinds of values that we have, just those two little things of recognizing the feelings you have, positive or negative, and aiming for your own emotions to be at three times more positive than challenging is going to adjust the balance of the kinds of negative emotions that come up or reactive things that come up so that you can have, even if your values are different, you can have a more positive conversation about it without somebody feeling like they want to jump up and run out of the room, which is the kinds of feelings people have sometimes.
0: This is beyond managing my feelings. Then as I do this process, as I ask myself, what am I feeling? As I express either to myself or in my journal or to another person, I am embarrassed, I'm angry, that I am able to reduce the frequency or the intensity of those, quote, negative emotions that's what the research is showing. No one ever told me that all I have to do is talk about my negative feelings and I get happy.
1: Well, they decrease when you recognize them. The thing is, is that people can have these boiling emotions underneath the surface and they never really ask and stop to ask themselves, what is the emotion I'm feeling? When you recognize it, then you become more and more aware of it. And when you're aware of it, then you can recognize it before it becomes reactive. Because almost all negative emotions are reactive emotions, right? Anger pops up, sadness. Sadness is not in and of itself, and sorrow is not a negative emotion. It's very often a positive emotion if you're feeling sorrow for somebody or empathy. Feeling sorry for somebody can actually move into empathy, and then it'll grow into compassion at some point. But there's also just feeling sad because of, of something that has gone between two or more people, sad for the situation and that sort of thing but it's really good to to recognize them and to recognize the nuances of them and see how they grow up and that sort of thing
0: i grew up in probably what was a typical household of this era of people in their 50s we were not taught emotions we were taught you know you you cry you'll get something to cry about we'll spank you that kind of thing certainly boys don't cry i'm not i'm female <laughs> but our male counterparts i think had it worse It was also still shaming. You know, little girls cry, adult women don't cry. That kind of get-yourself-under-control sense. Yeah. So I was taught to not at all look at them, not process them. There was no healthy way to deal with it. You just, like, shoved it in the back of the closet, and then they accumulated, and people did then and including me you know i had reactions a boss yells at me and i break out into now this was in my first job not last week but break down into tears and i run to the ladies room and i feel humiliated right i wonder if i had a better mechanism would i have been able to process that better by the way i was quite happy not having any emotions cuz i didn't realize i was missing anything. And I certainly wasn't wanting to delve into sadness and anger and all that stuff. So you're making a very compelling argument for, I am better off delving into the messy, painful stuff than just ignoring it, hoping it just
1: vanishes by itself. Or simply labeling it, just labeling it. Oh, I am feeling angry. Oh, I am feeling angry. It tends to, over time, dissipate that anger and it gets less and less. You may not even have to go deeply psychologically into the emotion itself, just recognizing that you're angry. People can see underneath the surface for years and not recognize that they are are really mad about something. (laughs) You know they're angry about something. You know what I'm saying here is that it's it can be simpler than going into all of the reasons and all of the psychological aspects of it. That certainly is a good thing too. And and you can have a guide that will help you with that. But all of us can stop for a minute. You know when they notice they're feeling something, you focus. You notice you're upset. Stop for just a minute and say. What am I feeling? And then labeling it. The more you do that, you, the more you recognize it. The more you do that, the more you are aware that, that that's happening. The more you're aware that it's happening, the more it dissipates. It just starts not. It's like, oh, here I am. I'm angry again. You know. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> I know this feeling. And you can start laughing at yourself about it.
0: So as we're going into the holidays, this is an opportunity because many of us who go visit family or even close friends have a long enough history that somebody will do something over the time. And (laughs) this is the invitation to practice. Even the people we love the most, they're going to do somebody will do something. This is something
1: that you can do any time in your life, and it's good to do it in business, too. Because what you want to do is build a good climate inside of your business, but that climate starts with you as a leader, And if you just start asking that question, and of course, it helps if you write it down. It helps if you speak it out loud to yourself because that really rivets it in. The more you recognize, instead of just kind of gloss over those feelings, the more you can have a sense of humor and the less you get reactive. You don't have to get reactive then because they don't just explode without you even having a chance to look at them first. So just labeling them just as simple as labeling them. And at some point, you know, you might even get to a point where you can feel your emotions without a label at all. And you can source your thinking through positive emotions so that your thinking comes out in a positive way. Terry,
0: one of the things that we started the conversation with was feelings influence thoughts. So let's go back to that for leaders, because this takes us full circle, to I wanna be the best leader I can be. If my emotions impact my leadership, then I wanna do whatever I need to do to be the best leader I can be. So so, So it sounds like naming my emotions, whether that means I then have to delve into it or not, that's a different decision. Can you tell us then a little bit about how emotions impact cognition?
1: Think about this for a minute. If you're in a really good mood, how does that affect your planning? If you're in a really lousy mood, how does that affect your planning? <laughs> You'll likely plan things that are more generous, more lighthearted. I have a, a capacity for doing good. If you're in a in a really mm-hmm. positive emotional setting and sense. On the other hand, if you're feeling angry, you're feeling hurt, you're feeling upset at somebody, you might feel like firing them rather than engaging in, in a way in your planning that can help them or incorporate them in a place where they're also happy. Help them work with their own uh, emotions and these sorts of things. So you you have more generosity of heart when you are thinking through a positive emotional frame. This extends to your immediate colleagues that you work with. This can filter down into the climate of the whole organization, and it can also uh, filter out into the world. Uh, For instance, the positive emotion of compassion. So let's say that you can get some supply that you need from uh, some poor farmers in Africa or South America or someplace, but they are just working themselves to death, and they, they don't actually get paid very much. If you are only worried about the bottom line, you're going to go ahead and and buy that material from them. If you're working out of compassion, you might find that you will find a way that you can make sure that they get the pay that they need because they are working very hard not only for for themselves. They're working for, for you. They're working for everybody that you're selling this good to. That comes into the ethical frame of how do you treat people? Who do you buy from in your supply chain? Is money the only thing that you consider when you're trying to make a good living for you and your employees? You know, it can spread across the whole world that way. I know people who have done that and they actually raise their prices so that they can accommodate people who are living in poverty and are providing our food for us. Because of the respect that they had and because of the diligence within which they did their job, they had people that wouldn't work with anybody else but them because they knew that the service they received from them was also going to be that diligent.
0: I think of people who do ethical sourcing or sustainable sourcing. For a lot of people, that's a luxury, right? If if you're living paycheck to paycheck, that may not be an
1: option, There's another segment of the population for whom it is a choice. Even though people are living from paycheck to paycheck, maybe there's something else you can do when you can't afford to do anything more. Simply expressing to people and being transparent with your books to prove to them that you're not holding back on them and promising that as soon as the money comes in, that they will they will get a raise and, and looking at your own ethics around where is this money going to come from and how, how much can I give people and uh, how can I be fair? So fairness is also, fairness is derived out of care and compassion and love for, for everybody. And when you get to the, the, to the emotion that goes beyond love to agape, agape is love without an opposite. So you spread everything uh, sourced out of that that fairness that that capacity to to uh, look as far out as your service might reach and as far out as you are reaching for services from other people. To see if your influence can influence all of your supply chain, all of your employees, and all of your people that you serve. How can you balance that? And then also, you know, if you can't afford to give more, maybe you're a person that is in the supply chain of somebody else. Maybe they need to look at what you are able to do for them and how your employees are suffering What I'm saying is that the world is interconnected everywhere. And if everybody had this or did that, everybody would get something fair. Of course, it starts somewhere. We think of ourselves as independent entities, but most of us rely on other people. Like you had somebody that helped you with ethics or values process. We all rely on other people, other entities that support us, and then we support others. How can you receive that fairness from other people, and then how can you pass it on? We've got a lot of work to do in this arena, and we can be one point on the intersubjective connectedness that we have around the world with everything that we do that can start that process of asking for what we need from the people who are receiving from us and giving what we can. And this comes down again to generosity of heart. Money is sometimes a very difficult thing to work with. Everybody wants their company to be rich enough and and everything, and you need to be fair to your company too. You can think about what is the process that I can use to participate, even if it's just a little ways, a little bit. One of the things that I tend to do is ask people to pay it forward. If they can't afford my service, I just put, you know, three hours into this inventory or five hours. Now you have something you can give. You're paying me by giving three hours or five hours of your time to somebody else. That's one way that you can put things in balance. You can suggest that to people who are supplying you. Thinking together as organizations, uh, because we're just one point in the whole world's Interconnectedness, thinking upstream and downstream, and you're just a point in that. Even if this is some little thing, how can you start this process that's based on these positive emotions of gratitude, of, of vulnerability, of generosity, of heart, of forgiveness, of lightheartedness, of love without an opposite? Love without an opposite is not a romantic love or anything, but it, it, you know, it's a form of agape that opens you up to the understanding that all along the line of all of your connections have suffering someplace, and how can you help them alleviate their suffering? You might just pass on this tip about positive emotions. One thing: name your feelings. That might change their whole organization if they really get into it, you (laughs) know.
0: Well, and that's something we haven't talked about or haven't talked about in this conversation, uh, generosity of spirit and lightheartedness and inviting others to do that. Not just that I've changed my behavior and nobody else does, but being transparent that these are the things that I'm learning and valuing. And I would like to bring them to everyone on my team so they am learning and valuing and I would like to bring them to everyone on my team so that we also elevate our part of the organization, and then by extension, as you also elevate our part of the organization, and then by extension, as you've talked about the interconnectedness and inner penetration or how what I do impacts everyone around me, those ripples can happen quickly.
1: They can. And try it with your competitor. Can you do all this stuff with your competitor? Yikes. <laughs>
0: You know, as you say that, my grandmother was a florist, owned a flower shop. The neighboring florists would get together every Sunday morning and talk about orders they had coming up for the week, what was happening with the wholesale flowers and the things that florists would talk about that you would think you would talk to your internal team about. And yet they were committed to the health of everyone in
1: their community, which was also their competitors. That is such a great example. And it's easier to do with smaller businesses. But I don't see why it can't be done with larger businesses. You know, I think that that can be the possibility. What would happen? I wonder. (laughs) And of course, we're talking about happiness here. We want everybody to be as happy as they can be. That should be the goal of every business, that our employees are happy, the people upstream from us are happy, the people downstream of us are happy, our competitors are happy. Gross national happiness would come true if we did that. It maybe is a dream that is unrealizable, but I refuse to believe that. That is a limiting belief
0: recognizing that the feelings drive the thinking, drive the behavior, drive the outcomes. Yes. I love that you started with the two questions. What am I feeling? And is this creating harm?
1: Yeah. Do no harm. Am I creating harm? The question, am I creating harm, is going to force people, if they do that all the time, is this plan that I have, is my behavior, is it going to do harm, will cause adaptive behavior. Because you don't want to do harm, especially if you have all these positive emotions. Some people are in a place they're so divorced from their feelings for themselves and for others that they don't think about the harm that they can do. But once you get in touch with these really deep feelings of compassion and empathy and generosity of heart, lightheartedness, love without an opposite, these sorts of feelings, and they are imbued in you, you can start seeing where your behavior or even your thoughts are leading you to a place that can do harm. What you realize in that moment is, I can adapt this so that it will do less harm anyway or not as much harm as it did do. One of the qualities of really good future organizations, regardless of how big they are, the bigger they are, the harder it is to be adaptable because, you know, it's just a difficult thing to make switches when you've got policies, you know, that affect hundreds of thousands of people in some of these very, very large organizations. You do have the capacity then to be very agile on your feet, become a complex adaptive system. And if you're complex and adaptive in your organization, your adaptability is also going to ripple out because you ask that question what harm oh. am I doing?
0: As I listen, I think of hopefully a small number of organizations, but they exist. That would say, I hope all my competitors do this soft stuff because I'm going to continue to demonstrate ruthless behavior and we'll just beat you softies. How do you respond to something like that?
1: I would say, what are you feeling right now? <laughs> <laughs> what is this feeling that you have? Are you feeling fear about competition? Are you feeling anger? What What is it you're feeling? That's how I would start.
0: Interesting. I'm just thinking of the range of responses.
1: Yes. You can ask them no matter what their response is. Mm -hmm. What exactly are you feeling that would make you say that?
0: Because it is hopeful that people could be happy and fairly compensated. They can have a lot of things and be quite miserable too. (laughs) I would prefer to live in the optimistic world than the pessimistic world. And yet there is a level of realism.
1: Yeah, I understand But it has to start somewhere. And my bet is there are enough people in the world that will take this research and run with it and just see what happens. It's a do-no-harm process in and of itself. You can't really do harm with this question, what are you feeling? You are going to do less harm if you ask the question, will this action, will this experience, will this goal cause harm and then be adaptable? Because if you do enough harm, eventually it'll catch up with you. Maybe people feel that they can be aggressive and all of the things you named about earlier and people take advantage of you. Eventually, things do catch up. Good-hearted organizations have customers. They do. I also know that some organizations are just so convenient that people use them regardless of what kind of emotions come up. But eventually, the positive will win out.
0: Just the very practical, tactical application is programming in on my screensaver, the two questions. Yeah. So every time I walk away from my computer and come back, I can ask the question, how am I feeling? Right. How am I feeling going into a meeting? Because often it's not overwhelmed, but just there are so many things on my to-do list that I'm not as present as I'd like to be. Will that do harm? It certainly doesn't help anybody.
1: Yeah, and you might feel some anxiety because you're trying to get everything done, which makes you rush through everything. So I'm feeling anxiety because I'm rushed. That's what usually people feel when they're rushed and they've got too many things to do. I feel anxiety. So just saying to yourself, I'm, I'm feeling anxious right now. I've got too many things to do and I'm just feeling anxious. Just identifying that anxiety might help you take a breath, a stop for a moment before you walk into the door of the meeting or click on the meeting for your computer and help you take a few breaths so you can be present at this one meeting. And you might make that a practice then. So you aren't rushed when you come in.
0: And invite everyone in the meeting to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, if you had no anxiety you're probably going to be pretty present. <laughs> I'm not sure what that place would look like for me.
0: <laughs> Terry, thank you. This is as always just a lovely conversation and for our listeners, I realize that this will have a multi-year life, but for those of us listening before the holidays, it is a wonderful invitation Some of us get anxious traveling. Some of us get anxious walking into families of origin that have histories. That invitation to put the anxiety in the box up on the shelf and set the intention to have a joyful interaction with those with whom we've
1: shared a life. Yes. And of course, before you put the anxiety in the box, you have to recognize, what am I feeling? Anxiety. You have to get the anxiety first before you can do anything with it. It's a simple question, but very few people do it. It's a practice I have now. Nobody is perfect. I mean, we're not going to be good at this overnight, but it takes time. Life is so much happier with positive emotions. Happiness is an emotion that is kind of a capstone for all of the other emotions Happiness is love, it's gratitude, it's generosity, it's lightheartedness, it's forgiveness. Happiness includes all of those areas. And just a general sense of well-being basically is supposed to happen when you practice these particular questions. Do no harm and what am I feeling? And if you notice that you're feeling pretty happy right now and pretty lighthearted, I mean, the minute I say those words, I'm feeling that right now. It just gets better. You know, it just gets better when you recognize it and you say it to yourself. You know, I'm pretty happy right now. And immediately a smile goes on my face and it just makes a difference for the moment. I wish I could
0: take this conversation and put it in people's holiday, whatever you celebrate, stocking, shoe, candles. (laughs) Here's the interview that talks about how to find that sense of well-being would be the biggest gift we could give those we care about.
1: Yes, we want that for everybody, and wouldn't our world be different if that happened?
0: Yeah, it sure would. Maybe we can send it to Vladimir Putin to end the the war in the Ukraine.
1: Yes, but we can wish that for him, and we can wish that for if he was in a feeling of well being, he would never would have started this war. He was feeling not having a sense of well being. <sighs> So rather than wishing bad things for him, maybe we should wish him to be happy and in a sense of well-being. And maybe he'd stop the war if he just felt glorious about his life, you know. (laughs) Most people don't feel the need to invade other places unless they have a terrible sense of (laughs) well-being. Well, I'm just so grateful for my life. I had a wonderful life and it hasn't all been easy, but I'm very grateful. Everything that has ever happened to me has actually taught me so many lessons, and it's helped me be happy. When I can look at it from the purpose of what is the lesson I want to learn here, or I'm supposed to learn from all of this, or I can learn from all of this. Well, maybe it's resilience, and resilience is good, even though it took a long, hard trek to get there, you know. Happiness is a beautiful thing.
0: Thank you, Terry. And how would our listeners learn more about stages? We talked about the developmental assessment and what that means, or how would they take an online workshop with you to learn about how they grow up different parts?
1: Well, actually, we have two drip courses. Neither one of them are very expensive. The first one is just called The Three Questions. And people can come in and take that and and just get a little bit of an overview of the stages matrix. The second one is called Confusions and Gifts. As we go through life, every different stage, every stage has, has a confusion. People get confused about things. And when people get confused, usually they think something is wrong. But in this case, confusion means something is right because this is the confusion you need to get past in order to continue to grow and these are very similar for everybody so that course shows the confusions and and the gifts of the confusions and and so people can take that if they want to the website is stagesinternational.com and they can uh, look around the website if they want to take an inventory they can purchase an inventory online In every inventory that I score, I give them this sense of positive ratio to negative emotions. And since this understanding that I've had related to what am I feeling, that usually comes out now too in the inventories. Because what we look for in those inventories is not necessarily whether or not you are at the latest level of development. We look at are you healthy? Are you happy where you are? And that's more important than scoring at a later stage because we've got some pretty unhealthy, unhappy people that have scored at later stages. And we realize it's much better to be healthy and happy along the way than to become later and miserable. You know, <laughs> happiness is really what we're all about. So
0: thank you, Terry. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. We do wish you happiness over the holiday season like us, share us, do share this podcast, because I think Terry's recommendations really are a true gift to the people we love. You can find us on LinkedIn under Innovative Leadership Institute. You can find us on the web, just innovativeleadership.com. And you can also follow me, Maureen Metcalf, on LinkedIn. Thank you. And we do wish you happiness and well-being.
1: Thank you so, so much.